everyone. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast. This is your home for movie news, reviews, and movie fan views. This is the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, and joined by special guest host and friend of the podcast. You have heard him on some of our instant reaction specials in the past. Welcome back, Dave Dixon. Hey everyone, it's good to be here. I always like talking movies uh, with my friend Ryan and also harassing him about his movie choices. So this will be fun. Hey now. Hey now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we have a great show in store. Uh, We're going to talk about the Dune premiere, the legacy of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nick Cage is, of course, back because, you know, we can't go a podcast without talking about Nicolas Cage. And we will have a friendly debate about Star Wars versus Indiana Jones. So that's going to be fun. And of course, we'll do our Fre- friend. Friendly might be a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. You ready to get started? Let's do it. Okay. So our first story from the news item, uh, Dune has an officially scheduled premiere debut. So the highly anticipated Dennis Villanueva reboot of the movie Dune is officially going to debut at the Venice Film Festival on September 3rd. So this is exciting. It's exciting that it has its official date. It's exciting that it's actually coming. Um, This is very, very highly anticipated. Uh, This movie stars uh, Timothy... And I never get his name right. Timothy Shyamalan. Um, I think that's yeah, Zendaya. Zendaya. Rebecca Ferguson, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista. Everybody. Everybody's in this movie. Yeah, I will say one thing about this movie is you're mentioning the cast. It is well cast. If you've read the book and then you picture what those people look like, well cast, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so this will be the second time in recent in a few recent years that uh, Dennis Villanueva has debuted a film at Venice, uh, previously in 2016 with Arrival, which was also another fantastic film, like most of Dennis Villanueva's works. So it's official. We have an official opening for Dune. So what are yes. your uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on Dune coming up? Well, here? for first, uh, I guess I've read the book. Okay. Uh, so, so that that plays a role in it, uh, and of course, if you've seen the the previous uh, you know movie version, uh, I think you can only go up from here. Yeah. Uh, I love I love uh, that Dennis uh, Villanueva. I can't even say his name. Villanueva is getting the opportunity to do this. Uh, they gave him two films to do it in. Which, again, if you've read the book, you know that there's a level of nuance and detail to this story that certainly deserves a multi film arc. Um, and on top of that, the fact that an, a blockbuster-esque film, um, is getting a Venice spot is always a good thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Venice sometimes has the, you know, the air of being a little snooty or trying to, you know, and with, especially with movies, award shows these days and some of the, the culture pieces around it, where it kind of gives that air of like, Sometimes it feels like the Oscar people are better than everybody else. These kinds of things uh, do help in those relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hopefully along those lines that this may open up the doors for potential Oscar uh, consideration for Dune, if it's as good as we are all hoping it is. Yeah. I mean, this, the story is as good. So now it comes down to the writing, you know, it comes down to the acting and of course like cinematography. So, you know, it's it is a hard book to bring into the film, particularly because uh, it's written about a culture that most, uh, especially like North Americans or even like Western Europeans, don't understand as well. Uh, it's based on uh, Arabic or Muslim culture, uh, kind of overlaid with sci-fi and some of the nuances there. So there's some pieces to it that are a little bit harder to understand or maybe that don't translate from book to film as easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a task that's extremely difficult. Um, yeah. But if anyone's up for it, 
Dennis Villanueva is. He has proven time and time again yeah. that he can handle big pictures. He can handle um, that type of that type of detail, nuance, and scale. I mean, yeah. Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a perfect example mm-hmm. of, yeah. of that in action. Yeah, I will say the difference though is that Blade Runner twenty forty nine was a singular story with actually very few characters. Yes. The difference in here is really the multi-layer of the story arcs. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've picked up the book, you know, the Dune, uh, Frank Herbert's class, I mean, one, it's a classic for a reason. Yeah. And two, it's a, it's a, it's a thick book. It is. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. So there's a lot of story to tell here. A lot of character interaction. Of course, it centers on, um, uh, t- Tim Chow, I can't remember say his last name either. His character uh, and Zendaya's character, but it uh, there's a lot of character to to interweave, and so it'll be really interesting to see what he brings into the script and then what he leaves behind. Yeah, it will because you can just never, you never can get it all in. I mean, yeah. even if you're going uh, full Peter Jackson on it, you're not going to be able to get everything. Yeah, exactly. You know, but but Stellan Skarsgård as uh, uh, Baron Harkonnen, I mean, the way that he's described in the book, he'll be able to play that to a T. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and same with the other roles. So, you know, you get the people in the right spots. You hope you get the, you know, you, there's the old uh, analogy of you got to get the right people on the bus and then you got to get them in the right seat. Yep. And it seems like he's done that. Yeah. So it's exciting. I, I'm looking forward yeah. to Dune. Dune comes out in October, debuting in theaters and simultaneously on HBO Max. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a premiere day one for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been waiting for this thing for way too long. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our second story. So our second story comes to us. Uh, we've got a 40th anniversary. This past week was the yeah. 40th anniversary of the debut of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first one in the epic uh, Indiana Jones series, which yep. were directed by uh, Steven Spielberg, starring Harrison Ford, written and produced along with the George Lucas. Uh, June 12th, 1981 is when this film made its debut. Yeah. And it has become a legendary film and an absolute classic film, which is still on almost every weekend on TV somewhere. Um, yep. And they are, in commemorating this uh, anniversary, they're releasing the four-movie 4K Ultra uh, discs for this set and, yeah. and for purchase on digital, which, of course, it absolutely needs. You absolutely need that. Uh but let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. So what do you think that this film in particular, why does it still resonate with everyone and what did it bring in particular? Yeah, you know, this film came out in uh, 1981, I believe, was the year, right? So 40 yeah. years, I'm doing the math in my head. So 81, right? So uh, I think the number one thing that it brings is, you know, when the 80s were rolling around, there was still this sense of like adventure of like what's out there to be discovered, what's new to find, you know? And so with Indiana Jones and even um, uh, the character uh, Marion and others there, there, there's this sense of like that there's people out there that go find new things, that there's treasure to be discovered and new stories to tell and things that, you know, uh, have, have uh, mysteries to be explained, uh, you know? And so uh, to me, that's the number one thing, right? There's this sense when you watch the movie, and, you know, it's, it, it's well-directed. Steve, I mean, it's, it's Steven Spielberg in his heyday. You know, it's classic Harrison Ford. Um, you know, it's a fantastic John Williams score. Uh, all of those things are there. The classic action tropes of the 80s and 90s are there. But what sets it apart is its sense of adventure, mm-hmm. like its sense of mystery. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that's one of the biggest pieces of its legacy. Yeah, it really does appeal to that, to the human the human desire for adventure, that human oh, yeah. mindset to, to explore and to 
and defined. It's it yeah. really, really, really does capture that uh, that part of the imagination. Oh yeah, I remember. So you know, this was back in the days of VHS, and uh, so my parents had recorded it off of TV. Mm. And <laughs> as a kid, I would watch that. I mean, I had that VHS rolling in there you know inside so I, I don't know how many times i watched raiders of lost ark and and several of the other ones as well not just that one you know but there was something that was just you know it was adventurous it was fun you know it was uh there was a sense of like while indy was doing things new he was also like standing up for what was good in the world um you know of course standing against the nazis that makes it looks makes it you know easy to do um but yeah, I, there's that, to me, that sense of adventure uh, was what it was all about. And it just captured that so well. Mm -hmm. Where, and he has such a, such a dual character, you know, the uptight professor of history, you know, yeah. the supposedly like boring subject of history where he's in his classroom teaching on the other side, you know, he's got his hat and his whip and he's out there running all over the globe getting yeah. shot at. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, goes back to like the whole piece of adventure. Like he wasn't about the door, the boring day job. Mm -hmm. He did it to fund his work, but that there's a sense of like outside of my work, there can be something else, you yeah. know, um, you know, or the, even the, you know, of course the summer kind of has the other summer blockbuster tropes in there of the, you know, the girl uh, that kind of rekindles the old flame fighting against the Nazis, uh, you know, something of literal biblical proportions uh, in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, all of those things are there. And, and that's kind of what, what makes it so great. Yeah. And I think it was also helped out that it is a period piece. So yeah. that, all, that always helps because it doesn't appear dated because it was- Yeah, it, it ages better, yeah. To that time. And so as long yeah. as you don't just absolutely make the worst, you know, all the terrible, awful graphics, as long as there's not yeah. all that, which there isn't. Uh, well, except for the, the final last, scene. Yeah, the final the last scene, scene is. But, you know, I, I was terrorized forever as a child watching that poor uh, guy's head melt off, which, of course, you know, was just a big wax figure. That doesn't hold up very well. No, it doesn't. But it was, it was, mem it was memorable, though, as mm -hmm. a kid. Like, I, you were like, why like his face just melted <laughs> and i think i talked about this on an, on a previous podcast but this was actually the movie that helped lead to pg-13 because too many people yeah. took their kids to see this movie and then the faces started yeah. melting off and the head started exploding and everyone lost their minds <laughs> yeah yeah like all right yeah. we need in between <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, they probably shouldn't go back and watch PG movies from the '70s then, because that's a whole nother. Uh, that's a whole nother. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's great. It's it's a fantastic movie. We're going to get into a little bit more Indiana Jones talk here in uh, here in a few minutes. So uh, let's move on to our third story. And it would not be a film for fans podcast if we somehow did not mention Nicolas Cage. And Nicolas Cage is back as only Nicolas Cage can. So if you're familiar with the John Wick movies, the impetus for John Wick's bloody revenge was the killing of his puppy given to him by his deceased wife. And then he goes on a three movie rampage, soon to be four movies. Nicolas Cage obviously thought that this was an idea to be copied. So he's back with a film called Pig. Nicolas Cage has his pig stolen. And therefore, he goes on his own version of a rampage. So this is, this is supposed to be what, what this movie is about. And it says this. Uh, let me see if I find it. It's, uh, you should okay. just tell your listeners to go watch the trailer. You need to watch the trailer. We will put a link to it in there. Oh my but goodness. this is what how it's described. A truffle hunter who lives alone in the Oregonian wilderness who must return to his past in Portland in search of his beloved foraging pig after she is kidnapped. Dude, let me tell you something. When I watched that trailer, 
first. One, if you hadn't told me that was an actual movie, I would have thought it was a joke, a fan thing someone put together. Second of all, it sounds like someone had too many mushrooms when they came up with the plot of this movie. Yes. <laughs> and third, just for good measure, um, does Nick... Does, does Nicolas Cage do anything like serious, like actual serious anymore? Like th this just seemed like I watched it. I was like, this is like, you've got to be kidding me. This is like, it looks like a joke. Like it looks like someone put it together as like a practical joke. Like Nicolas Cage has, he's, I mean, he has become, he has become, and I'm, I'm blanking out on the word at the moment. Like he's become a caricature of himself. Like he was already a caricature and now he's become a caricature of his oh, caricature. It's, it's terrible. I mean, it, like you said, it's like someone watched John Wick and was like, yo, if we can get Nick Cage to do this with a pig, like, like, like that, 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 that was, that was the plot. <laughs> who like who can have someone, someone that just wants bacon. I mean, that's what it boils down to. I mean, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, you watch you watch the thing, and he talks about like cooking and all this stuff, and, and he's a truffle hunter, which I'm um, assuming plays into his role as a chef or whatever it is in the movie. But when you watch it, I mean, it, it legit looks like someone was like made a, like a fan fic film and was like making a spoof of something else, and they just used clips of Nicolas Cage and a pig to do it. You know, I haven't. That's legit seen, what it looks like. I haven't seen anything this ridiculous since KFC did like a romantic love story with Mario Lopez playing Colonel Sanders a while back, and that was just See, like a at least that thing. Yeah, you knew that was a joke, though. Yeah, like you, like 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 you knew it was a spoof. Yes. Th this is like, I mean, at least in the trailer, uh, if without any more context, it looks like they're being serious. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's frightening. That's there are several there are several things I don't understand. One is how does Nicolas Cage keep getting these movies made? Like who who is financing these things at this point? I and secondly, it's Fantastic it's obviously question. clear that the man has no shame. He has no, no, no he absolutely literally no. do anything. No, I mean I, I do wonder uh, about his budget. Uh, because it, it could be that he's just he has no shame because he realizes that there are bills to pay, and if someone will pay him to hunt people down for taking his pig, why not? Why not? Why I mean, not? he's he's already done Left Behind. How much worse can it get? <laughs> um, Indeed. And you know he would. There's so many. Yeah, he. Uh, it almost seems like his time has passed. I don't want to say it has passed because I. Uh, I certainly would like to believe that he could step it up at some point, but this is uh, not it. Yeah, it's it's not looking good because I mean at this point, how how do you not taint your own film by by hiring Nicolas Cage at this point? I mean, I, I don't. Know yeah. You, so I mean, the only thing I can think of is like the the guy needs like an epic cameo. Yes. So like he, he need he needs, you know, he needs an epic cameo where like there's other stars in the movie and then out of nowhere comes Nick Cage and you're like, whoa, that's Nick Cage. And that's how you get him back. That's how, you know, you revive the career. But yeah. again, who, do, who does that? I don't know. We're looking at you, Marvel. Hey, your time, good Marvel. That's a good point. I'll take it. <laughs> Actually. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm sure they'll find him some. But yeah, I can't take that movie seriously. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. The only other thing I could think if it's not a cameo, it has to be um, a sequel. There is there is a face-off too coming at some point. Nah, man. Both John, him and John Travolta are just too old. And I don't even care if they bring back new actors. It's too long. Yeah. It's too long. It's like the Space Jam thing all over again. You can't bring back the 90s. The 90s happened and, you know, there was the things about that, but you can't recreate that moment. It's just not the same story. It is not. And LeBron James, you're no Michael Jordan. That's all. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> all right. So we will, we will leave Nick Cage in the dust at this point and we'll move yeah. on to our discussion items. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's begin with this. In honor of the 40th anniversary of Harrison Ford, 
and we've been talking yep. recently on the podcast about Star Wars. Which is Harrison Ford's best trilogy? The original Star yep. Wars trilogy or the Raiders of the Lost Ark? All right. So before I answer, I got to ask, when you say best, are you are you saying like which of the movies are the best or like was Harrison Ford's role in them the best? Um, let's start with the Harrison Ford part. Now, obviously okay. he goes from, he was a, the main character. He was the man in, in the Raiders, of the lost Ark, where he was just a part of the original star Wars trilogy. However, his characters in both trilogies are iconic and legendary. And it was the Star Wars trilogy that launched him. So let's start out with the Harrison Ford and then we can, we can move beyond that for Harrison Ford, which which is the best trilogy for Harrison Ford. In terms of Harrison Ford's acting and which character does he portray the best? uh, It's gotta be Indiana Jones uh, because when you look back at that early, like the early Star Wars, you know, the, the, the first one slash episode four, A New Hope. Um, I mean, he, he's, he's very green. Uh, it's hard to even tell he's acting. Uh, if you've ever seen Harrison Ford, like do interviews, it's kind of like he just he's always that snarky. <laughs> um, but when you see him do Indiana Jones, there's that there's the intellectual side that you get there. There's a little bit better of a character development that you get there um some of his more iconic lines come in uh the indiana jones trilogy because uh, really other than uh you know um you know i've got or like what does he say like it's going to be bad or whatever i got a bad Star feeling Wars. about i this. got a bad feeling about this <laughs> uh and then his uh when leia says i love you and he says uh or whatever it is like um yeah, you like you too or whatever. Like he doesn't even like say it back. Uh, that's really it. I mean, whereas like Indiana Jones, you've got the like snakes. Like I hate snakes. You know, you've got like and you've got the whip and you've got the hat and you've got all these like things that go along with it. Um, and let's be honest, uh, with the exception of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh, the stories for Harrison Ford were better in the Indiana Jones trilogy. That's, that's my argument. So I will just, for the sake of argument, I'll take the star Wars end of this. And what I will say about the star Wars end of this is that he is, he is probably the character who is, who represents kind of the linchpin in terms of, you know, you know, where Luke's at, you know, you're rooting for Luke. But it's you want Harrison Ford to come around like you want him to be the man he, he he's supposed to be. So he establishes him, himself early in the first film as this kind of rogue character, um, not really going off of anything. And he constantly has to be talked into everything. And, yeah. and so that constant resistance, that constant foil that he plays he plays it in such a way that he's not annoying, but he's engaging. Like you want him to come around. You, you like him, you need him to come around. And, yeah. and there's such an incredible moment at the end where he shoots, uh, he shoots the tie fighters and he realizes he's back. And that's, that's at almost as big a moment in that film as Luke nailing the actual shot. The fact that yeah, comes but back. see, okay, so I'll, here's the <laughs> angle I'm looking at it from: okay. is if you were to, so you, if you were to replace Harrison Ford in either trilogy, mm-hmm. which would be most effective? And it's the Indiana Jones trilogy. Yeah, because I I still think that you know there are other people in the '90s who could have played Han Solo, and. I mean, you never, it's hard to tell these things, but likely could have been justified as iconic Hmm. because the things that drive Star Wars um, are not necessarily the characters themselves. Let's be honest. Um, But Indiana Jones was a little bit different in that if it was somebody else, I don't know that it would have been the same. 
you know, he carried uh, the, the look and feel of Indiana Jones uh, in a different way than he carried the look of Han Solo. Yes. Uh, so I, I just think in terms of like, which was his best, I have to argue Indiana Jones only now I love star Wars Mm -hmm. and love all things star Wars. Um, but honestly, if you take all of Han Solo's arc, including what takes place in the most recent films, you can definitely say that his character in Indiana Jones is a better character. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right on this too. I just felt like I needed to take the other side. Yeah, so I know. I got, I got you. I got you. Uh, and and part of it's the difference of being the guy versus one of the characters, and that's there is yeah. there's no getting around that. That's the case. Um, which do you think he's most known for? Uh, he's probably most known for Han Solo, honestly. I mean, because the global the 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 global of appeal of star wars over a longer period of time Mm -hmm. uh definitely han solo yeah uh of course you know that was illustrated when they brought him back out for uh episode uh seven you know when they brought him back and then he faced his demise at the hands of uh kylo ren um and then his uh his like cameo appearance in number nine uh that was a little bit more of a shock uh factor there so, I mean, he's definitely more well-known for that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the profile of the Star Wars trilogy has remained uh, high. Um, that's not necessarily a hint at the, at the quality. But again, when it comes to the place of, of things like this in culture, it's not always based on which one makes the most sense right. uh, as well. Yeah, for sure. So let, let's let's do a couple minutes. Okay. Now, let's take the original trilogy of Star Wars and the original trilogy of Indiana Jones. Which are the better movies? Are the better movies. Yes. So which ones are the best movies? Which is the best trilogy between the Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Star Wars trilogy? Oh, man, that's a tough one. That is a really tough tough one. one. That's a tough one. Um, Wow. It's like asking to pick between your like two chose closest childhood friends. Um, wow. Yikes. Uh, I'm going to have to go with Star Wars on this one. Okay. Um, and that's just going to come down to personal preference. I like space more than I like archaeology. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, Empire Strikes Back is probably the t- the tightest film of all of the three original Star Wars and the three uh, Indiana Jones. Although uh, Last Crusade could probably give it a run for it, uh, but Empire Strikes Back is the tightest. Everything that is iconic about Star Wars comes from Empire Strikes Back. Mm. Mm. Whereas, like when you think about the Indiana Jones trilogy, the thing that sticks with you is Indiana Jones. So it's spread out over the movies. Whereas when we really think of like what's iconic about Star Wars, it's Empire Strikes Back. The Mm -hmm. music, uh, the real look at Vader, um, uh, the first glimpse of the Emperor, um, the, 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 the scope of Star Wars and like the Empire itself or the idea of what a Jedi really is and all of the, all of those things that are iconic come from number five. So I'm going to say the star Wars. Okay. I would say if it, I'm going to tack along similar lines to you on this one. If it wasn't for empire strikes back, I would say Raiders of the lost Ark. Because no, last crusade, last crusades. Way no, I mean, than- I mean like, I mean, oh, Indiana okay. Jones. Indiana Jones. Okay. Okay. Because I, I also like The Last Crusade as my favorite one. But I would say the first and third films of Indiana Jones, I would put up there, if not slightly higher than the first and third from Star Wars, because they are that good. They are that. Yeah. Good. The difference comes in the middle movie. I don't love Temple of Doom. I don't think Temple, of, I think Temple of Doom is well below the other two in terms of quality. Uh, now there's some great elements to it and it's still a good film, 
but when you, yeah. when you hold that up to empire strikes back, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hold a candle to it. So yeah. I would argue that the Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark and the last crusade are just as good, if not a little bit better than star Wars and return of the Jedi. But empire strikes back is significantly better than temple of doom. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is. It is the movie that made Star Wars go from blockbuster hit to cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I know people like to look back at the story of Luke, you know, kid on a planet, two sons, like that whole longing type thing. But really, Empire Strikes Back is the one that that put it in, in, in the, the realm of lore that it is. And honestly, for me, it took me a long time to really come around on Empire Strikes Back. As a kid growing up, it was my least favorite of the three films. Um, mm. I think just, just because of the, the, the difficulty of the storyline and, yeah. and how it is not a film where the heroes succeed. Yeah. I think that was just difficult for me as a kid to wrap my, to really get into and really wrap my head around. So it took me a while to come around to, yeah. to greatness, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's, uh, let's move to our second discussion. And since we have Dave on the podcast here, and Dave is not a regular contributor, I thought we would just take a few moments and just talk with Dave about some of his favorite movies, some of the movies that he values the, the best, what you would consider your favorite movies. All right. So number number one for me, uh, top of the list, uh, still sits Interstellar. Mm. Um, nice. Interstellar, Interstellar for me. Now I'll I'll uh, unashamedly admit a huge Christopher Nolan fan. Uh, I'm willing to argue about which Christopher Nolan film is the best. Um, but for me, Interstellar still takes the cake, even though it may not be the easiest to understand Mm -hmm. or it may not be the most cohesive of his films uh for me interstellar still takes the cake because of the level of of what christopher nolan tried to accomplish yeah Uh, of of really trying to take something that is um some with scientific proof some scientific theory and incorporate it into a story that let people feel the emotional weight of those scientific theories. Mm -hmm. Like for me, like to wrap your mind around that and then to get into a story that expands people's thinking on these things. To me, that's why uh, it's his best film. Um, Yeah. The whole, the whole concept of, the, the time moving backwards uh, or at different speeds along the way, uh, the way that when you watch the end of the movie, you realize what's actually been going on the whole time, um, the pieces of that, the way that he connects it together, all of those things for me make Interstellar uh, number one. Is there, a, is there a particular moment or scene in the film that, that sticks out to you as as a highlight from it. Yeah. So two jump out to me. One is when Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway come back from the planet and they come back in and I cannot remember the actor's name. Uh, they come back and he's, they're like, Oh, well, you know, we just made it back. And he's like, you've been gone like 15 years or you know, 20 years or whatever. And they're like, what? And then he sits there and he watches mm-hmm. all the videos and letters from his children. And he watched them go from joy to frustration that he hasn't written them back. And as a father, like you just, you get that sense of like, you know, you're, you're so torn because he, he goes to, to space to find a way to save humanity, but it's at the cost of the love of his own children and how his, you know, his daughter still loves him, but his son has given up on him and, and the, the, the pain of that. Uh, and that leads to the second one, which is when he's in the, uh, the bookshelf labyrinth, which represents uh, the, the theoretical physics concept of the, of the brine 
uh, and where that sits. And as he's moving through time and he's watching his daughter, there's this moment where you get this sense of like, not just is he finding the solution to the problem, but he's actually reconnecting with his daughter. Mm-hmm. And there's something that's, that's really powerful about that moment uh, that is just, again, you see the whole story come in circle and the emotional weight of it really comes around. Yeah. And to take concepts as, as abstract as uh, fourth dimension or a fifth dimension yeah. and, mm-hmm. and Einstein's theory of relativity and to create that level of emotion is, is fantastic. Yeah. Plus you get a random cameo by Matt Damon, which is totally random. (laughs) You're like, wait, that's Matt Damon. Uh, And then Matt Damon loses his mind for whatever (laughs) reason. Uh, You know? um, Yeah. If you, if, uh, if you're listening to this and you uh, love that movie, I definitely recommend going and grabbing uh, Kip Thorne, uh, who is a theoretical physicist who played a role of consultant on that movie. Uh, he wrote a book after it explaining the theories that are in the movie. And he goes and actually explains which ones are real, which ones are theoretical and which ones are um, like really far out there. And it's a fantastic book. All right. What's your next one? Uh, my second one. Uh, and yeah, and this is a little bit of a, uh, of a, I guess an oldie at this point really, but uh, gladiator and every time I watch that movie, I want to go out and do something amazing. There's just something about being a man and standing up, you know, standing up in front of Caesar and just watch, you know, when, when Maximus stands in front of Caesar, especially that scene where iconic movie scene, Commodus comes out, says, gladiator, tell me your name. And he tur- takes off his helmet, turns around the look on Commodus's face and just the sheer terror uh, for Caesar in that moment is, is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, while historically Rome didn't stand for as many good things as they like to point out in that movie, <laughs> um, the idea of giving your life for what is right and what is good and what is true uh, is, is something that uh, we really need, particularly for men in our culture today. Uh, and it's something that, that, uh, Russell Crowe, uh, and of course, Ridley Scott, uh, and the crew there portrayed us so well in that movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so like, I feel like if you don't watch that movie and especially as a guy and there's not something in you that just says like, we need to go do something like right now, (laughs) like then you've, you've missed, you've missed the movie. Plus, Russell Crowe was actually in shape for that movie. That might have been the greatest yeah. that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was one of, I mean, again, I, I, maybe not a truly original concept, but really one of the uh, last great blockbusters that was an original script. Yeah. Um, it wasn't based on a, a book or a, uh, you know, a comic book or anything like that. Uh, it was, you know, it was 2000s and in, in its in its finest. Yeah. And it did help launch that period of time where uh, it brought back what they call the sword and sandal movies, where you've got a bunch of historical period pieces yep. that followed on the heels of that. So we got we got several great films as a result of the success of that one. Yeah. And the story is even better if you watch the extended edition. Yeah. Um, it's uh yeah it adds another half hour or so but let's be honest you're already in about two two and a half hours at least anyway um it the the story is better uh it's richer uh and turns in some some top-notch performances mm-hmm. uh from from really uh pretty much everyone uh there on the uh, on the crew i mean and all of the actors and actresses in that movie really turn in some of their best performances of their careers yeah yeah. Do you got one more? I uh, know. I'd say I'm going to stick with those okay. for now. I mean, I, all I right. can talk we'll about those movies all day, uh, <laughs> but we'll stick with those two for now. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are two great additions and I, I would consider them near the top of my list as well. 
All right, so let's go into our watch list. These are movies that we've watched in the last week or recent, very recently that we will go ahead and talk about. So I'll start this one since we just talked to Dave about his films um, and then we'll come back to one for him. Uh, so this week I watched The Interpreter, which was with uh, Sean Penn and Nicole Kidman. And Nicole Kidman plays a UN interpreter who overhears something uh, on a hot mic in the UN that she shouldn't have heard uh, about a plot against an African dictator, uh, which leads to her uh, being under suspicion, also being threatened. Uh, and Sean Penn plays the FBI agent who is assigned to investigate slash protect slash be around, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so he, the, this is an interesting film in that it, it delves into a lot of, of some of the, the African politics with some of the African dictators. Um, they pick a, a generic country. They don't name a specific country, but it was very much things that we've seen happen in the continent of Africa over the years. Um, a, a leader goes bad, becomes corrupt, becomes a dictator. Um, it talks a little bit about the role of the UN, uh, but it really is about Nicole Kidman's character, about where she comes from, about her past. And as, as the movie unfolds, you learn more and more and more about her character. Um, there's, there's a few elements that are, I think it's, there's some implausibility in some of it. Uh, but it's an interesting movie. Have you seen this one? Uh, I have not seen that one, actually. Uh, I do remember the trailers for that one, uh, but just never got around to it. Yeah. So you can check that one out. The Interpreter. It's, it's an interesting yeah. an interesting movie. Um, another one I watched was Basic. I've been, I've been touring through uh, some 90s and early 2000s action movies. So I came around to Basic starring John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, and uh, uh, Connie Nielsen, who of uh, Gladiator. Gladiator, yeah. It basically revolves around a group of trainees in basic training go out on a mission with a a really hard-nosed commander. And when they go to pick them up, like they're shooting at each other and only two of them survive. And Connie Nielsen is investigating, and then they bring in John Travolta to investigate as well. It is a complicated story, to say the least. Uh, I would argue that perhaps it is too complicated. There are several big twists and turns throughout all of it. And looking back, when you get to the end of the movie, after you've seen all the twists that come into play, you end up saying, really? Is that... Does that make sense now of the original part of the original motive for the story? Does that really make sense? Uh, the other thing I found with this film is it, it does a lot of flashback scenes. As each character kind of tells their story, they go back and show you what it looked like from their perspective. And when these incidents happened, it was in the middle of like a hurricane. So half the movie is just loud pounding rain and wind <laughs> and everyone shouting. So yeah. it really makes for a little bit of an unpleasant experience every time they go back to that. Cause there's just so much loud pounding rain and shouting. Um, yeah. I think that actually hurts the overall, the overall uh, course of the film. Yeah. So this one was one, you know, one of those pieces, I feel like in that time period of the nineties, there was a lot more writing on star power. Mm -hmm. uh, than perhaps what we see in our movies today. Uh, so, you know, getting John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson back together. I mean, this was like, uh, you know, really two of the big action stars of the era. Uh, so it seemed like there was a little bit of like, hey, let's get these guys together. Or we got this script. Uh, we got to get Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson back together uh you know after their uh tarantino movie so like we got to get them together to do this action film that's uh, kind of a little bit of what it seemed like yeah 
Yeah. So it was definitely not one of my favorites from that particular genre. Yeah. But quintessential for the 90s. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, like the you're talking about like average 90s film. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff. Yeah. And the last one I watched was uh, uh, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. I had mentioned on the podcast last week that I was going through and wanted to watch all the, the sequel trilogy straight through because I don't think I'd actually done that. Uh, just to get a second look at, at them as a cohesive whole. Um, so I finally came to The Rise of Skywalker. And I think that for me, that was clearly the best film of the, of that, the last trilogy. I you think, think so? I do. I do. I mean, I, you use the word cohesive for those. And I, I would say cohesive is not the word that I would use. Well, for what I, I wanted to see sure. them all together. Yeah, yeah. Try and piece yeah, them yeah, all sure. together. Not that they were cohesive, but that to see what it what it actually looks like as as one giant story. So yeah, I I, I mean I gotta I gotta push back on your okay. uh, it's the best one. Okay. Because it um yeah I gotta I gotta disagree. Uh I feel like uh well, let me lay out let me lay out my reason okay, okay. all right fine one all right. Quick, and then you can counter okay. that. So my beef with the first one is it is just way too much a copy of Star Wars uh, episode four. It's it's so much of a copy of Star Wars episode four that it's it's a little ludicrous. Uh, And and the direction they went with that, I just wasn't super pleased with. The second one, uh, the ridiculousness of the. um Finn storyline through that entire oh, movie a- a- absolutely was awful. Poe Dameron was awful in that in that film too. There were some very good elements to it, but there were so many things that were just so terrible in it. Uh, uh, yeah. That almost by default the third one was going to be better. Um why I like the third one better is I think uh there were some like r- supremely iconic scenes. The the lightsaber battle on the on the cliff with the ocean in the shadow of the fallen death star was top notch that was that was one of the visually just absolutely stunning scenes um yeah yeah i'll give you the i'll give you the visual on that one yeah but uh but really yeah i mean and jj abram would later admit that they did not put the story together at one time and right. they totally should have. whenever yes. you tell a trilogy you've got to know i mean he knows this yes you've, you've got it you know. you've got to have the arcs of the story otherwise yeah. it doesn't make any sense so i would say that that iconic scene that you say mm-hmm. is awesome about number nine should have been in number eight i agree <laughs> i agree mm-hmm. so that's why i actually think the first one mm-hmm. or so in this case number seven uh is the best of the three while yes it is a it is pretty much an exact copy of number four it was the only one that recaptured the magic Mm. it's the only one that made you like feel like this is star wars Mm. um you know and so yes was it a copy yeah but it was uh, and perhaps it's the nostalgia factor. Perhaps it's, you know, seeing it back on the screen since the, you know, uh, early 2000s. But it's the only one that captured the magic of it. Uh, because the deeper you go into eight and then nine, actually it ruins all of the previous movies more. Seven doesn't actually do that. I, I would push back a little bit. I think what they did with the death of Han Solo I think kind of hurt that a little bit. Um, and of course you're absolutely right in that, you know, in seven, the way they, the way they, they handled Luke, I think really, really curtailed that magic for sure. Um, but it's, it's an interesting argument because I can see where you're coming from there. Um, yeah. I can see. I don't mind the death. I don't, I don't mind the death of Han Solo. So, which actually goes back to our, uh, Harrison Ford argument. Harrison Ford wanted to die in, in uh, Return of the Jedi, but Lucas wouldn't let him. Uh, so I, I think t- Harrison Ford was done with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. 
which is interesting because he came back for Indy, but he didn't really want to come back for Star Wars until they yeah. flashed him the cash. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what did you watch? What do you watch this week? So this this is going to be a little bit of a pullback in the vault, in the vault. Uh, but uh, as I've been, uh, so, uh, you know, Ryan and I talked movies for a long time, uh, watched a lot of movies. Uh, one of the things we do outside of movies is talk about culture. And one of the movies that always seems to pop up eh, every now and then around culture uh, is, is a classic uh, called Idiocracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was talking to my wife a few weeks ago and we said, you, and she was like, you know, you're always telling me about this movie and how it's, and it's coming more and more true all the time. Uh, we should watch it. So we did, we watched it uh, last week and the disturbing part about it was, is that it was actually a more accurate picture of things going on today than I remembered it being from the last time I watched it probably about 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's scary. It, it's, it really is kind of scary. And I mean, I, obviously there's uh, you know, it's dated uh, in some ways, um, you know, is my, of course, Maya Rudolph from SNL. Uh, you've got uh, the, uh, the, um, Oh my goodness, the the peck bouncer himself. Uh, I can, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Terry Crews, yes, Terry uh, as, as El, El Presidente uh, there. But you know the the social and psychological pieces of the movie and the messages uh, that were trying to be communicated that movie are totally true today. I mean, even that op- the iconic opening scene where it just kind of uh, the narrator lays out the general concept of the movie, which is that stupid people are having children faster than uh, educated people, or I guess uneducated, educated, I shouldn't say stupid. But, um, but the bottom line is, is that things like basic things of knowledge uh, begin to be lost over time. And actually, if you go to our birth rate, in the United States today, it's dropping and it's continued to drop even coming out of COVID. It's actually at its lowest point uh, in US history. So things like this are coming true. Uh, The commercialization of everything, which is a huge part of that movie. Totally see that all all over the place. Um, So yeah, it didn't do well in theaters. It's kind of gained a little bit of a cult following since uh, it's directed by the same guy that did Office Space, um, so it's definitely worth going and checking out. Uh, I would I would go back and check that one out for sure. Yeah, I can remember. I re- I remember my thought was always it was a brilliant concept, uh, just you know, slightly poorly executed, <laughs> partly due to budget. Yeah, but yeah. It- so yeah, Luke Wilson carrying a film is still a tall ask. Yeah. Um, but you know, in, in this sense, he does play the character well because the whole point of the main character is that he's basically average. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I mean, sorry, Luke Wilson, but average is something that mm-hmm. y- you play well. Yeah. Um, not quite as much of a stretch as uh, his brother playing a male model, but you know. Yeah. Also true. Also true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great movie. You definitely need to see it. It's one. It's one that should be on your your watch list for sure. Yeah. All right. You got anything else about that? Are we uh, ready to? Uh, no, I mean, I, yeah, we could get into the psychological aspects of that, but no, I can't. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't go in that. And uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't take an opportunity on the podcast to just uh, remember uh, that this year was uh, the. Uh, the 15th anniversary since the premiere of lost. Uh, (laughs) And uh, while I know it's not a film, uh, it is in my heart, one of the greatest pieces of things ever put on film. And uh, so we, we celebrate that as often as we can. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Lost is a legend. Okay, so we will conclude today by talking about our recommendations. We're just going to throw out a random film 
any film that we say that you should see. Uh, so I will go first on this one and we'll let Dave close it out. Uh, my recommendation is an Amazon Prime film uh, from 2004, none other than Dodgeball, an underdog story. And classic. 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 This, is, this, movie, this movie was so iconic. It actually literally brought Dodgeball back into the public parlance. I remember being in college it did. and all of a sudden Dodgeball leagues are popping up all over the place as a result yeah. of this film. It made it made ESPN eight the Ocho an actual thing. Yes, yes, it did. Uh huh. And it brought Chuck Norris back. It did. There were so, there were just some amazing amazing moments and amazing lines about this. Um, in fact, my wife was uh, was reading something where you're talking about movie quotes that have made their way into into everyday everyday lexicon, and one of them was. One of them was from this movie, and it was that's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see how it works out. <laughs> so that idea of the I still remember you can cotton. dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. <laughs> yeah. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. That's right. So yeah, right. check out if you've not seen Dodgeball, or if it's been a while since you've seen Dodgeball, you need a laugh, go back and watch Dodgeball. Yeah, it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. We need more films so, like this now. We do, although you know, in that vein, this isn't my recommendation. But uh, Will Ferrell's latest uh, thing about the uh, song of fire and ice, or whatever, mm. uh, that 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 was uh, much better than I expected to be. Uh, could have been the presence of Rachel McAdams to counter the absurdity of Will Ferrell. Um, but the the Eurovision movie it brought me into a whole world I didn't even know existed. <laughs> um, so. Uh, but my recommendation today is going to be like the complete opposite of dodgeball. And I'm going to go towards more serious side. I was reminded of this movie this week as I was listening to what I consider to be one of uh, the best movie soundtracks ever created, or probably if not, the, I was maybe classified as the most underrated yes. movie soundtrack ever uh, created. And that movie is the fountain. Mm -hmm. uh, what I consider to be, uh, one of Darren Aronofsky's best films uh, and most misunderstood films. Uh, so tells the story of a man who loses uh, his wife to cancer and goes on a journey of trying to discover the cure uh, uh, or the uh, remedy for eternal life uh, and finds it and has to deal with the ramifications of that. And just how uh, insane it is to see Aronofsky tell this intertwining story of the same man over different time periods, uh, trying to live it out. Uh, and then that, that final scene where he actually, where the whole thing actually isn't about him finding uh, eternal life. It's about him finding peace. Uh, and I mean, it, it's a, it, I, re I still remember when you and I actually saw that in theaters, mm -hmm. uh, we went with a group of people that looked at us afterwards and said, I don't get it, <laughs> but I would, I, I, but it is legitimately, uh, you know, of course, uh, some of the uh, Buddhist uh, concepts aside, one of the most beautiful uh, movies and uh, really tight movies that I've ever seen. Yeah. That's certainly on my list of favorites. It is extremely well done and not enough people have seen it. No. And I also will, will uh, put a word in for Arnovsky on that one, that uh, it probably would have been better as well had the studio not messed with it and tried to rebrand it as well. If they would have allowed him to use his original vision for it, uh, it actually probably would have been an even better movie. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, everyone else is getting director's cuts of everything and relaunches. Maybe we can somehow grassroots a, a director's yeah. cut of the fountain. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure it's sold well enough on DVD to warn a director's cut, but, you know, whatever. Well, I don't know it's, if you heard, uh, you, if you saw this, but we talked about, I think it was last week on the podcast, we talked about fans creating a Super Mario extended edition from the Super Mario movie. Oh yeah, and found like they found on a VHS somewhere like thirty extra minutes of the Super Mario movie, and went through and like created wow. an extended edition of the Super Mario movie. 
So if that wow. can get us an extended edition, we can we can somehow. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'll start. I'll put. I'll put on. I'll start the. I'll start the hashtag now. We'll see if Ar- Aronofsky picks it up. Yep, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the show. Uh, thank you for tuning into Film for Fans. Make sure you rate and subscribe. Uh, share the podcast with your friends. We'd love to have more of you around. Uh, send us a message and give us a comment if there's something that you want to discuss. Uh, Also visit filmforfans.com where we have reviews and articles and lots of fun things for you to check out. Until next time, enjoy the movies.